All right, today we are getting to, you know, our new series that's entitled Rebuilding, all right? It's going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah. So if you haven't already, go ahead, take your Bibles out, and let's turn to the book of Nehemiah. This series is going to last probably for about 10 weeks, all right? We haven't nailed it down specifically yet for about for 10 weeks, as we're going to look at this wonderful Old Testament text. As I said, the titles of this series is Rebuilding, and in a moment, you'll understand why we've chosen this title. Now, one of the first questions some of you may ask is this. Well, why are we looking at such an ancient text? You see, Nehemiah was written somewhere around 440 BC. And so if you do the math, it says these words were written about 2,700 years ago. And some of you might want to say, why is it important that we look at something that was written so long ago? Well, let's make this recognition, all right, that the Bible is a historical narrative that reveals God to us, okay? When we read the text, all right, here's what we're gonna do. In a moment, when we start reading about Nehemiah, catch this, we're not really reading about Nehemiah. You know who we're really reading about? God. Yes, we're gonna look at Nehemiah and see what we learn, but we're ultimately seeking to learn what does God want us to know? What God wants us to know more than anything is him. And through the Bible, we have these recorded stories, all right? We really have recorded of his story, all right? It's God's story we have recorded. Much of how God has revealed himself to us is through these stories that I said are historical narrative. Most people, when maybe you hear the word story, you have this tendency to think fiction. But folks, not all stories are fiction. In fact, my favorite stories are the ones that are historical, all right? When we read Nehemiah, we're gonna be reading part of Nehemiah's story, but more than that, we are reading what God is doing in the life of Nehemiah, and more importantly, in the life of his people. Now, why is this important to us? I mean, I think that's a good question for us to consider, don't you? Yeah, you think it's good to question to say, hey, you know, why is this important to us? Yes, it is. I mean, if this text isn't important to us, then why read it and why spend time preaching on it? Well, the answer lies in seeing what God is doing. If you go back and back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses six and seven, we read something very important. In that text, Moses was speaking to the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, speaking to them about God's plans and what he was doing in their lives. He was sharing with them what they were to do as they were preparing to go into the promised land. And here's what Moses shared from God. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Now, what we must never forget is in the context of history that God chose the Jewish nation to work through in order to spread his glory in the earth. They were to be a holy people to the Lord and they were to shine for him. In fact, they were to be priests to the nations, helping others know God and worship God. However, for those of you who know your history, the Jewish nation turned their backs on God. They turned to idols and failed to be light in the world as God desired. God had even told Israel what would happen if they rebelled. He said, he told them in advance that if you rebel, you're going to be captured by other nations, then you're going to be scattered from your homeland. Israel's demise really as a nation started like the demise of most nations. It started internally. Israel reached its heights as a nation under King David. Maybe you know him as the David that defeated Goliath, but he really was Israel's greatest king. 
However, after he died, his son Solomon came to the throne. And even though Solomon helped build a temple for God, by the end of his life, he had failed to keep God's covenant and statues that God, to the point that God judged him. And so when he died, the nation of Israel became divided. You had the northern tribes that were called Israel and the southern tribes that were called Judah. This division caused a civil war, making a terrible time in the history of Israel. We as a nation understand that, right? Because uh, the civil war in our nation that we experienced was also one of the lowest points in our nation. Would you agree? It would, right? Now, God's judgment, though, fully came when the Assyrians invaded in 722 BC and the northern kingdom ceased to exist. Judah, however, remained a nation for more than 300 years until Babylon's King Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem and took the people captive. This is referred to in biblical history as the Babylonian captivity. Second Chronicles 36, 18 to 20 records this to help us understand what happened. And it says, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the kings and his princes, all these were brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. All right. For those who remember their biblical stories, think this. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Y'all remember them? All right. These were captives under the reigns of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what is more important, though, is hearing the details that the house of God had been burned and the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down. Jerusalem was totally destroyed. Now, why is the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem and the temple so significant? Because the temple represented the place where God dwelt. And Jerusalem was the center of the nation's worship of God. Their brokenness was symbolic of the people's failure to worship God. Their destroyed condition gave a physical picture of the people's spiritual brokenness. However, let me remind you of something, all right? God doesn't give up on his people. That's good news, right? If God punishes, it always is with a purpose. Even in the midst of punishment, God still wants to use his people. I can make this statement with confidence because even when the people had been taken into captive into foreign lands, God didn't take his hands off of them. And God didn't look at them and say, oh, just go out there and wonder. Listen to what God said to his people in captivity in Jeremiah 29. He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In other words, God still wanted his people to glorify him even in the midst of their suffering. They were to seek the welfare or the good of the city for the, even though they were captives so that in the midst of that, God would still be glorified, all right? And the people would benefit from that experience. Now, here's what is clear in this action by God is that God punishes, all right? When he punishes, he isn't saying, I am done with you. When God punishes, he's calling his people back to him. And so God wanted his people to glorify him even when things were still tough. In fact, think about this truth for your own life. Listen real close. Even when things in your life are tough, if they're tough right now, God still wants you to glorify him in the midst of your difficulty. You hear that? God wants you to turn to him and to live for him because whatever your difficulty is, it is a temporary situation and God is still at work in your life. 
Now, here's what God did with the Jewish people. God did not leave his people in their suffering. God, in fact, used the Persians to deliver his people. The Persians, under the pagan King Cyrus, defeated the Babylonians, and Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and the city. What is key for us to understand is the words of 2 Chronicles 36. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Look at this. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Jerusalem or Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with you. Let him go up. In other words, what we must not overlook is God's sovereignty so that he can even move in the heart of a pagan king to accomplish his purpose. I mean, if you think of this, if you think any situation is out of control of God, it's not. Because if God can move in the heart of a pagan king to allow a group of people that that king would consider an enemy to go back to their city and to rebuild it, then I'm here to tell you, God can accomplish anything, all right? God can work in your circumstances and the people around you to restore the brokenness in your life. You know, this period when Cyrus let the Jews go back to Jerusalem is called by some biblical historians as the second exodus. And it took place under the leadership of three different men, Zerubbabel, then Ezra, then Nehemiah. If you read the book of Ezra, it, it focuses on the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. However, the temple stood for 90 years without any protection. Yes, the temple had been rebuilt, but there were no walls around the city to protect it from enemies which might attack. The need to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem is the focus of the book of Nehemiah. Now, let's hit pause for a moment. Can we do that? Can we hit pause? And here's what we're gonna do because here's what I know right now. I'm gonna just be real honest. Right now, there are two groups of people in this room. The history buffs who loved me taking time to talk about history, right? And you're shaking your head, said, that's great. And the rest of you who are bored stiff, who said, why did he take all that time? That's y'all laughing right now, right? Yeah, that's me. Why did you take all that time? All right, I, I, I understand that, all right? Again, though, I think it's important that we see what's going on here in the context of history to remind you that we're going to read through the book of Nehemiah, and as we read, it is historical. This is not just some made-up fantasy. Nehemiah is not a fictitious character. Nehemiah is a real man who played a part in the historical narrative of God's work with his people and in the world. So as we read his story, we learn about God and the people that God uses. And so where are we at this point? As the book of Nehemiah starts, God's people have suffered for their rebellion. They have returned to Jerusalem with a rebuilt temple. But as a general rule, the people remain broken and need to finish rebuilding. Therefore, today, what I want us to consider is this, is what does it take for a person to be a leader in rebuilding for God? All right. So let's begin reading in Nehemiah and find out. I want to read the first four verses, then we're going to come back and discuss what it takes to be a leader who rebuilds for God. Nehemiah 1.1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who'd escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, 
The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, let's ask ourselves this morning, what are the characteristics of a leader who rebuilds for God? All right, I want to look at this this morning. What, what are the characteristics of a leader who re- rebuilds for God? The first one is simply this. It's an ordinary person in the place to be used by God. You see, here we're introduced to Nehemiah, an average person. And just so you know specifically who we're talking about, this is Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And some of you are going to say, oh, Hakaliah's boy, I know him, right? No, no, not really. The only thing that may make Nehemiah special is his name because his name means Yahweh comforts. Because of his name, there's at least a little assumption on my part that at least his parents had a faith in God. But for our sake, we need to understand that his name is a reminder that God comforts. Even though the the people had suffered punishment because of their disobedience, again, it didn't mean God didn't love them. He truly loved them and wanted to comfort them. I know in my life when my kids were little and I had to punish them a time or two, always hated it when I had to punish them. But if I had to punish them, I always went back to them and always wanted to say, I want you to know that daddy loves you. And just because I had to punish you doesn't mean I don't love you. Because even though I punished them, I wanted to comfort them and I wanted them to know that my love still stood. All right. And so Nehemiah's name does make a statement. It was God saying, I I still love you. You are my people. And God was going to work through Nehemiah to comfort and even to help rebuild his people. Nehemiah himself, though, as far as we can see in Scripture, was just an average person because we do not have any details about his life leading up to this moment. The only other detail that we get about his life comes from verse 11 where it says this, Now I was cupbearer to the king. And some may look at that and say, well, Nehemiah had a special position because he had access to the king every day, and that's true. But you have to ask yourself this question. How special is somebody who has this job, all right? He is a servant, and every day when the meal is served to the king, all right, he tastes the wine and tastes the meal to make sure it's not poisoned so that the king doesn't die. In other words, at every meal, it could be your last. To me, that seems like somebody that's a little bit expendable. How about you? If I don't really care enough of him to say, hey, I, you, you, I want you to see if you die before me, right? It doesn't seem to me like there's anything special. He, he's just a servant, just an average guy who has the position as cupbearer to the king. But again, nothing special about him. And might I say this? This is really true for all of us. All right? In fact, I could point back to last week. If you remember last week, I ended. I said it could be a whole nother sermon. I'm not going to delve into it. But remember verse 10, it said this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God beforehand that we should walk in him. In fact, I'm going to say this. I would say each of us is both ordinary and extraordinary. The thing that makes us extraordinary is this, that God has something he wants each of us to do for him. And we may see our lives as ordinary or average, but that's the kind of people that God loves to use. And if you doubt me, I'm going to say, listen, I know that's true because 1 Corinthians 1 says this, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So here's what I'm confident in. You ready? That a characteristic of a person that can be used to rebuild is simply an ordinary person and a place for God to use. 
That's you, wherever you are. Trust me when I say this. God has you right where he wants you. God has you where he wants you and he wants to use you for his purposes on this earth. Do you think God can use you? You better say absolutely he can and he wants to. But now look, there's a second characteristic though of a leader who builds for God and this is very important. They're willing to ask the tough questions. Okay, look at what this text here about Nehemiah. Look at what it says again. It says, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. You see, one of the exiles who'd went back to Jerusalem was Nehemiah's brother, Hananiah, and Hananiah comes with some other men to Susa to see Nehemiah. Notice, Nehemiah didn't ask about his adventures, but he asked about the people. Those exiles who'd returned to Jerusalem and then specifically about Jerusalem itself. Now, maybe you don't see that as a big deal, but here was Nehemiah back in Susa. And even though he was working for a pagan king, he at least had a comfortable position and most likely was taken care of by the king. Nehemiah could have just ignored the situation in Jerusalem because at this point, it wouldn't affect his life one bit, all right? No matter what was going on, it didn't make a difference to him, except this, hear this. When you love God, you care about his people, right? And you can care about the condition of others. You're not satisfied with what's going on in your little bubble. You are concerned with the plight of others, even if they are currently not even in your eyesight. You're willing to ask the question, how are things really going? Not just how are things going presently for me? In fact, let's take a moment and consider when was the last time you really asked the question, how are things going? When was the last time you asked the question, how are things going in the community? How are things going in the school? How are things going in the state? How are things going in the country? How are things going in the world? When was the last time you really asked those tough questions and were truly concerned about the answer? I mean, we might ask it a little bit differently, right? We might say, well, how are things going with my neighbors? How are things going with my extended family? How are things going with my coworkers? How are things going with my church family? We can ask the question different ways, but the key is, are we willing to ask the question? If nothing else, here's what I know. That Jesus looked at his disciples one day and he said this, do you not say there are yet four months then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus said this in part because the disciples were amazed that Jesus had just had a conversation with a Samaritan woman who had a deep spiritual need in her life. Jesus was wanting his disciples to open their eyes and understand that all around them were people who needed a relationship with him, yet they failed to recognize it. They were failing to ask, how are things really going? And I wonder today if we're doing the same thing. When we should be asking who around us needs a relationship with Jesus, we fail to ask the question and fail to help rebuild lives that are around us that, that, that we are in a position to help. Maybe that points to the need for many of us to ask another question, which is really this. How are things really going with me? How, how are things with me? And ask the question, am, am I seeking God in my life? And do this, say, how are things going to me? And say, God, show me if there are things in my life that need to be rebuilt so that you are in a position to, to, to after being rebuilt by God, that you can help others rebuild their lives. 
See, I hope we're willing to ask the tough questions because asking the tough questions leads to the next characteristic of a leader who rebuilds for God, and that is has a heart that is moved. You see, after Nehemiah asked a hard question, Hananiah and the men with him gave him an honest answer. Look at what they shared again. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. See, the honest assessment was this. Things are still bleak back in Jerusalem. I mean, yes, the temple has been built for almost 100 years, but the people in the city are still a mess. All right, let's make a quick observation. Hananiah referred to the people as the remnant. That term is important because God often referred to a remnant of his people. For example, in Jeremiah 23, God said this, then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be what? Fruitful and multiply, all right? Those words are important because they remind us once again that even if God is punishing his people, he, it is not without purpose. It is also a reminder that God is always at work in his people to restore them and bring them to a place where his glory is seen on the earth. And so Nehemiah hears that the remnant are still in great trouble and shame and the walls of the city are still in disrepair. And so what does he do? He sits down and weeps and mourns for days. In other words, his heart is moved. Maybe better put, his heart is broken. Now, this is important because, hear me, action is typically preceded by a heart that is moved. The fact that Nehemiah cried showed that he had, uh, uh, was burdened for this brokenness. And what we see in the weeks and what we'll see in the weeks ahead is the burden that he felt in this moment where he cried and wept, all right, led him to action. And we're going to see what he does in the weeks ahead. Now, I've not had the opportunity yet to see the movie, The Sound of Freedom. Many of you maybe have. I haven't yet. I'm hoping to see that soon. But I have been told this, that if I go see it, I need to take my tissues. Some of you have seen that. Is that true? Yes? All right. So take my tissues with me. I'm a crier at movies. So I'll tell you, I probably better take it, all right? Now, now the movie is based upon the true story of Tim Ballard, who became burdened over child trafficking and even risked his own life to save children caught in this awful industry. What we can say is true of him is that he became burdened, broken, moved, and that led him to action. I'm sure that some who are, have made that movie, they hope that in viewing that movie, there'll be other people who are burdened and who are moved and they'll act to help also end child trafficking, this industry that has become all too prevalent in our world. And what I want to ask all of us is this, all right? Tim Ballard was moved at one point. Nehemiah was moved. Let me ask you, all right? What has moved you? Is there anything recently that has broken your heart? I know in our midst, we have some here who have had hearts that were moved to reach those who've experienced crisis pregnancies and they become involved with clarity solutions for women. There are some who've become moved by the need for children to be fostered and adopted and they've acted and they've fostered and they've adopted. There are some here who become moved by the needs of those struggling with addictions and they have acted to help people overcome their addictions. There are some who become moved by children with special needs and they've acted becoming, becoming involved with special needs ministry. There are those who've been moved with the need of children to have positive mentors and so they have volunteered to mentor lives. They have acted and the list goes on. But my question for everyone here this morning is, what is it that has moved your heart? 
Every person ask that question. What has moved your heart? What has broken your heart this morning where you're going to get on your face and you're going to pray and you're going to mourn and you're going to say, God, use me. See, I appreciate the words of Eric Mason. He's a pastor of a church. He helped start in Philadelphia. He wrote these words. He says, it's time to rebuild. It's time to join God on mission, to join what he's been doing since the fall. The world is in trouble and he has sent us in as his special ops team. We need all hands on deck because this is war. In Jesus' name, it's time to get out there. That's what it means to be on mission. Too many Christians are just consumers. We say, I need a word about this. I need God to help me with this. I need. No, God wants to do something for his glory in our neighborhoods. We've got to roll up our sleeves. No more consumerism. There probably should have been a bunch of amens. I'm just telling you, right? That's a needed word for us to hear in our day. It's time for us, God's people who, unfortunately, yes, we've got caught up in consumerism, even in the church. It's time for us to say, God, break my heart. Help me see what's really out there. And say, God, I want you to use me to rebuild you, all right? To rebuild for your glory, to rebuild for your kingdom. Because you see, a leader who builds for God is a leader who has a heart that has been moved. What has moved you? Because you see, then after your heart is moved, a leader who rebuilds for God trusts in a faithful God. You see, as Nehemiah's heart is moved, we see that he does something very important. Look at verses, look how verse four ends. And he says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's heart was moved and it led him to first not only weep and to mourn for days, but to fast and to pray. What Nehemiah knew was that if the brokenness was going to be fixed, that the answer would ultimately have to come from God. And Noah trust, or Nehemiah trusted the faithfulness of God. He trusted in the promises of God. He trusted in the power of God. And so he turned to God in prayer and fasting, believing that as he sought God, that God would give him direction and provision as he acted. And so we're going to look in the next few weeks what, what, God, what God did in Nehemiah's heart and how Nehemiah trusted in God. And because of that, he helped rebuild. All right. Now, here's where we need to end this morning. Let's first remember this, that God acted to heal our brokenness. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus resurrected for what? To heal our brokenness, to rebuild our lives, so that, God, so that the Father in heaven would be glorified. We had experienced brokenness because of sin, therefore we needed God's forgiveness and healing, and Jesus came to make that possible. Think about this. Jesus even came in the form of an ordinary man. An ordinary man to deal with our brokenness. We read in the scripture where Jesus was moved with compassion and even wept over the brokenness around him. And of course, all right, he acted. At the same time, he trusted in the faithfulness of God, even praying to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. He died to deal with our brokenness but then he calls us in our rescued state to rebuild for him. Here's how God, as we as God's people are referred to by Jesus. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you hear that? We are a city on a hill. We are to be a place of safety and healing, a place that others can run to and know that they will be safe. We are to be a place where people come to and connect with God and find God work in their lives. Let me make this, let me make something clear that I've alluded to or at least hinted to earlier, okay? The rebuilding of the wall in the book of Nehemiah is not really about the rebuilding of a wall at all. You know what it's really about? It's the rebuilding of a people. That's really what it's about. Jerusalem being destroyed was symbolic of God's people failure to worship him and as a result, suffering punishment. And there are times I, I look at the church today and, and I mean the church universal and wonder if we're any different than the Jewish people who suffered exile. Could it be that we need rebuilding in our lives? All right. I, I think there's a part where we can say we need healing ourselves. And so church, let's do this. Let's seek God's healing in our lives. However, let's seek that healing knowing this, okay? That God has rescued us through Jesus Christ and now he is calling us to be a part of his rescue plan for the world, all right? He's calling us to help and the, the, the healing that's needed, all right? And heal the brokenness that's all around us. It's time for us to be leaders in rebuilding for God. In a moment, we're gonna remember the fact that God worked to rescue us. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we have an opportunity to remember that God loved us in our brokenness, and so he sent Jesus to redeem us. He sent Jesus to offer healing and rebuilding in our lives. The bread that we're going to take in just a moment is representative of Christ's body that was broken for us. The juice represents his blood that, that he spilt for the forgiveness of our sin. And Jesus gave his life so that we might be forgiven and restored and then used for his glory. As we have this time together, it's going to be our time of invitation. During this time, I invite you to consider what your response needs to be to the message today. Maybe for some of you, you need to come to this altar. You don't need to come get elements first. What you need to do is you need to come and kneel at this altar, and, and you need to ask God the question, God, what, what needs to be rebuilt around me? Maybe spend a little time and say, say, God, I want to lead for you. And I know I'm ordinary, but in your hands, I'm extraordinary. And, and God, I, I want to ask the question, how are things really? And ask God to reveal to you the things that are around you that are broken and needs healing. And this morning, let God break your heart. Let him break your heart. And then you continue to pray to God and say, God, show me how I can help to rebuild for your glory. Now, once you've done that, you can come. Take these elements whenever you're ready. Today, for those who are our guests, what we typically do is we come out and we come and get these elements. We take them back to our seats there and you take a moment and you meditate to the Lord, all right? In the bottom, there's two cups. The wafer's in the bottom. The juice is on the top. You take that. And I always ask folks, if you're a believer today, to take those and I want you to pray and thank God for what he's done. If there's sin, you need to confess that you would do that this morning and say, God, I, I wanna get things right before I take it. Then you can celebrate what Jesus has done for you. But listen, my heart wouldn't be broken today if some of you said, I'm not, I'm not even taking Ellis more because I'm just gonna spend my time on my face before God, all right? Because I want him to break my heart so that I can be a part of his rebuilding process. Now, there are some of you here this morning, this is what I know. All right, you need to give your life to Christ. And if that's you today, we, we wanna help you do that. 
Brother Jacob's going to be over here to my left, your right. I'm going to be over here. And if you're here this morning and you say, I need to give my life to Jesus, we want to help you do that. You may say, I, I don't know what it, what it all means, all right? But you saw what Delaney did and you said, if she can do it, you know, maybe there's something there for me too. I need to do that. Will you come and we'll begin a conversation, not rushing you to anything, but giving you an opportunity to connect with God because maybe you realize today your life is broken and only God can fix it. Well, the good news is through Jesus Christ, he's come and made healing possible, amen? So we're gonna have an invitation. I don't know what your need is, but as we come during this invitation and celebrating the Lord's Supper as well, I pray you'll turn to God and say, God, break my heart. Let my heart be broken for what's broken by yours. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow into your presence today. And God, what I know today is there is a lot of brokenness around us. And Father, I ask your forgiveness that there are times that we just close our eyes to that, almost believing as if everything is okay. And so Father, today I pray for your people that we would ask the tough questions and we would say, how are things really? And the Father, today we would allow you to open our eyes to the brokenness around us and that we'd be ready to say, Lord, here I am. I'm ready to help rebuild for your glory. And we begin that, the, the steps necessary to be a rebuilder for you. And so God, move in these moments, speak to our hearts. And again, if there's one here today that know, they know their life needs to be rebuilt and they wanna give it to you, I pray in these moments, they would step out by faith, ready to receive Jesus, ready to receive him as Lord and Savior and rebuilder of their life. So let your spirit move in this moment, Father. Speak to hearts as only you can, and I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.